0: Hello and welcome to the programme. You can visit the website anytime you like rte.ie forward slash mooney. Another busy programme ahead of us tonight. At home in Malahide, it's Richard Collins. How are you today, Richard? I'm very well, Derek. All set and ready to roll. Very good. In studio with me, Niall Hatch, Niall. You're not in Wicklow today, Niall. You're here in the person. I am indeed. It's really nice to have the chance to look you right in the eyes and see your facial expressions. makes a big difference. But we're missing somebody, Niall. Do you know who it is? Terry? Yeah, Terry, where is he? He's coming in today. He jo- oh, there he is. Terence, what were nice. you doing? Yeah, well, sort of. Anyway, sit down there. What were well, you doing?
1: I was out taking some <laughs> measurements on my weather station because of all the rain we've had lately. I just can't believe it. I thought July was bad, but then we came into August and on the bank holiday weekend, on the on the Saturday morning, there was 47 millimetres of rain in the garden. I don't know where all the rain's coming from. Or do you measure the rainfall in your garden all the time? I do, yeah. I Why? Well, a little weather station. Just because I like to do it. Yeah. No no particular reason. I'd like to see what way the wind is blown, the wind speed is, what the air pressure is and also what the rain is. You must be fairly unique, Terry, I think. Not at all. Lots of people would have a weather station. Niall, do garden. you have a weather station? I, I don't, but
2: I can certainly see the attraction. Um, we scientists, we like to gather data. You never know when it could come in handy. <laughs> do you, Richard, do
3: you have a weather station? I don't, Derek. It would be too depressing, I think, most of the time, the way things are going. But however.
0: Now, the last time I was out in your place, Richard, I noticed that you have the most fabulous pollinator garden in your front lawn. Tell us more about it. and We'll put a picture on the website.
3: You're very kind, Derek. Well, actually, it's gone over its uh, best now, but it's not to be nice that this garden is planted. It is planted for the benefit of the pollinators. That's what it's all about. It's a pollination thing, and it is a very successful pollination. Now, I can't claim credit for it. The credit must go to Ronan Hayes, who's an old friend of ours, a landscape gardener, horticulturalist in North County, Dublin, and he worked on this for couple of days and up came all these beautiful flowers you have poppies and barrage and cornflowers and oh it's glorious and from having one of the most uninspiring gardens in the entire estate I had for a brief period a garden that people actually stopped and looked at it was a new experience for me the residents association are no longer having meetings about how they'll bring me to heal, tidy the place up but anyway I'm afraid it's on decline now, because... Uh,
0: that's the problem when you put in kind of a wild garden, wild flowers. I mean, they bloom, and when they're blooming, they look fantastic. But when they're not, they do look a bit scraggy, let's be honest about it. No, don't be so negative about it. Not I'm at not all. I'm not being negative. No, no, no. i no, no, just no. you at as it is, a, is, Terry.
1: No, because what's happening now is it's going to seed. I presume, Richard, you're going to collect some of the seed, and you're going to replant in the garden again next year. Because mm. it's not just about... The flowers. It's about the importance of the seeds. It's about the, the importance of the continuation of these plants. And that's what's going to happen now. So it's not, OK, it, it, it's in a cycle and it's gone past the flowering part. But remember, the flowers are not for us either. The flowers are really for the insects, for the bees and the bumblebees to provide them with food, to provide them with nectar and pollen to get them through the season. So I, I think it's important to look at the four seasons of them, not just while they're in flower.
3: Yes, and they, we have Support from the tortoises, the peacocks mm. The red admirals The small blue butterflies, they love it We have a buddleia bush, and they love That buddleia, people Rail against introduced plants It comes That comes from the Himalayas But it is the butterfly Bush, we also have firs Very attractive, and we have little warblers And I suspect a wren may be breeding In it sometimes, and we have Cotoneasters for the thrushes In winter, when it's cold the blackbirds and the song thrushes love that but i must stop praising my my uh, my extensive estate it's just a tiny garden i might add
1: one thing I noticed this year was the variety of butterflies that we were getting to the garden. We were getting a huge numbers to start with, and like you, I have a butterfly bush, and they just absolutely love it. But even though it was very, very wet, during the dry periods, but I'm thinking particularly to in June and in early July, we were getting the comma butterfly in the garden, quite a lot of them. Now, I had never, ever seen a comma butterfly in Dublin before. Have you noticed them in Malahide?
3: No, I have not noticed the comma, but I haven't been as attentive as I should be. But perhaps it's there, but I haven't seen it, I must admit.
1: It's, it's very distinctive, all right, that, that comma, and when the wings are folded up, it's very, very dull with just this comma, so it's very easy to make it out, and then it opens its wing. But the other thing I've noticed about the comma butterfly, it's a very, very tame butterfly. It's probably mm. the tamest butterfly that I've had in the garden, which is great in one sense, because while it's feeding on the likes of Budya, you can get up close to it and get a photograph of it without actually interfering with it.
2: Absolutely. I've, I've seen that myself, and, and I think it, it also illustrates something very important about butterflies. We're talking about the pr- provision of nectar for them with buddleia and with other plants, which is really important. But what we need to remember as well is that uh, what's often a limiting factor for so many butterflies and moths as well is that all of them can, or most of them, can drink nectar, but they have different food plants that their caterpillars must feed on. And that's sometimes very specific for, for each, uh, each butterfly. So to take uh, the, the marsh fertility butterfly, one of our, our rarest insects, uh, that uh, the caterpillars rely on a plant called devil's bit scabious which is a, is a flower that's quite patchily distributed within Ireland. Uh, when you look at a lovely butterfly, one of my favourites, the orange tip, it's one of the earliest butterflies to emerge in in, in the late spring. Uh, it, uh, it feeds, or the caterpillars feed mainly on a plant called lady smock or cuckoo flower, so-called, because it blooms at the same time as the cuckoos tend to appear and start singing in Ireland. And without those plants, for the caterpillars to survive and for the adult butterflies to lay their eggs on, those butterfly populations would disappear. So we need to have both those pieces of the jigsaw. We need to have the nectar to sustain the adults, but also the plants to sustain the Caterpillars.
1: Well, you mentioned there the uh, the devil's bit scabious and the marsh for tillery. I remember when I was teaching, we used to take the transition years down to Lullymore, to the bog, every year in August. And we used to take them down to remove invasive species, the likes of birch and that. Because as they were growing on the bog, they were soaking up all of the water. And they were also preventing the devil's bit scabious from growing. So by removing these, it allowed the devil's bit scabious to thrive. And the marsh fritillary butterfly was thriving down there. And the marsh fritillary butterfly, it's the one animal... Animal, not just insect, that has the most protection, I think, in Ireland.
2: Yes, yes. It's our only legally protected insect under the Wildlife Really? Really, absolutely. Of all the thousands upon thousands of insects in Ireland, that's the only one that is specifically Why? protected. Well, it is a, a rare insect. Um, it's not alone in that. Oh, we have there's many rare, a rare insects. species. Absolutely. Yeah, I, so I would certainly say that the law needs to be updated there. Certainly the, the marsh artillery butterfly needs protection, but sadly so do so many other species of insect and invertebrate. It's a very attractive butterfly as well. It's, it's always a joy to see one because I just think they're absolutely beautiful. It's kind of a subtle beauty. From a distance, they look a little, bit, a little bit black, a little bit orange. Up close, they look to me like a stained glass window. Mm. They are stunning.
1: And I think a lot of credit has to be given to the IPCC, the Irish mm. Peatland Conservation Council, for all the good work that they're doing down there in the bog to, to help to, to maintain this butterfly.
0: I want to go back to the rain, because when it was raining very heavily, I noticed, as I always do, that there are very few birds around. In fact, the only birds that are out and about on wet days are the ducks. You know the old saying, perfect weather for ducks. Where does that come from? Well, uh,
2: ducks are aquatic birds. I know they're aquatic, but why do they like the rain? Because when the rain falls, it's literally like water off a duck's back. That's (laughs) what it is. Um, Because you find this also with quite a few seabirds. The rain doesn't bother them that much because their feathers are waterproof anyway. They spend a lot of their time, the majority of their time, in an aquatic environment. So they're used to having water all around them. And crucially, it doesn't affect their feeding. Come rain or shine, ducks and and also lots of other water birds and seabirds, they're either, in the case of the, the mallards, the typical duck we have, they're dabbling underneath the water getting pondweed and things from the bottom, or if you're, let's say, a bird like a puffin out at sea, you're diving and catching fish or cormorant or something like that, doing the same, the rain has no impact at all on your ability to find that food. It's quite different if you're a bird, let's say, like a a swallow that relies entirely on small flying insects for food. When there's heavy rain, you just can't find food. Those insects aren't on the wing. You're not uh, like a warbler or a wren or something that can pick them delicately off the underside of leaves where they're sheltering. You have to catch them in the air. So for birds like swallows, house martens, swifts, prolonged periods of rain can be very destructive and I was going to
0: say you do have to feed every couple of hours don't you? Yes
2: they do and with the chicks in the nest it's a, especially at yeah. very formative time it can be a real problem for them But
0: just before we continue with that but back to the duck the reason <laughs> I say it may seem like a silly question there must be a point where the rain is too heavy even for the duck I mean there were one or two days there where that rain was proper torrential Yes,
2: and the thing with it is that it all comes down really to, to the, the pressure this is putting on their feathers. So if you have really heavy rain falling on the feathers, it can disrupt the waterproofing. Right. Sometimes people think that what uh, what causes the waterproofing in, in birds' feathers is oil in them, because they do all have a preen gland and they use that um, to, to, to coat their feathers. However, that doesn't provide the waterproofing. It's really like hair conditioner. Now, it's a long time since I've had use for a hair conditioner myself, um, but uh, the birds use this for their feathers. Hair and feathers are made of the same thing, a protein called keratin. Uh, and what it is actually, it's the microstructures within the feathers that keep the water repelled so, so they, they almost have little barbels on them that act like little zips and they zip together and they produce this sort of uh, sheet over the top that the raindrops the water can't penetrate through but that's if it's at a reasonable level. But if it's falling with a lot of force and for a prolonged period, it can actually start to break apart the zips between those barbules and water can penetrate through and get through to the skin. So that's something that Aquatic birds are generally better adapted for high water levels than birds that don't live yeah. in an aquatic environment. But after a while and over a prolonged period, it can become But
0: generally speaking, for the water to roll off a duck's back or a bird's back, yeah. does it have to take a particular posture when it's raining? Gather itself in and stick its head high up into the sky and stretch its neck? You so, the Again. water just does it? I'm just wondering. How you'll,
2: you'll often see that when it's raining. So, birds like herons are a very good example of that. They are a very elongated body, a long neck. You'll sometimes see them pointing their bills skyward yeah. to try and. Pre- it's presenting the, the, the smallest profile to the sky, I suppose, so that the, the rain w- won't impact them as much and will roll off quite easily. So, you'll, they do do it. No, they do. I'm not Again, no, that. absolutely. And for a lot of smaller birds, especially uh, land based birds like warblers and blue tits and so on, they'll try to shelter in the trees if they, if they can. Now, birds are um, capable of flying in the rain. They don't like to do it. It's harder for them because, of problems with the air pressure and when it's raining the air pressure is lower and it means that it's that bit harder for them to fly because if you imagine flying and swimming as being very similar things we can't fly us humans by flapping our arms but we can swim by flapping our arms in liquid in water it's exactly the same principle Um, and if the water was less viscous or less thick we have more struggle to keep going when the air pressure is lower, that's actually the case for the birds. And it might be only a marginal difference, but these birds, they, they live life on a knife edge. So it can make a big difference for them. The other thing in heavy rain that affects birds and affects all of us, and any of us who ever had to drive in heavy rain will know this it affects visibility. And mm-hmm. that can be the big problem because it's very hard to see where we're going, hard right. to see obstacles
1: you were mentioning there about the water the best example I can think of that is if you're on the seashore and you're running along the coast and if you're running along on the sand you can run along quite fast but if you go into water up to your knees and you're trying to run through that it slows you down considerably so yeah of course the birds are going to have a problem for that not only might they be flying into wind but they're also flying through rain so it's going to slow them down but it's not all bad news with the birds when we get good summers here when it's sunny and when there's very very little rain that makes it very very difficult for Certain birds, the likes of the the blackbirds and the thrushes, to to get food for the young in the nest. Because although blackbirds most of the time will feed on the likes of apples and that, when it comes to feeding the young, they need protein, and what they do need to do is they need to be able to take animals from the soil, the likes of earthworms and that. And because the soil is so hard, it makes it very very difficult for them to get food. When it's raining like it has been for the last couple of weeks, although the birds may look scraggy, they can get out there, they can get onto the garden, they get into the lawn, and they can get food. For the For their young to bring back to the nest, so it's not all bad news when we have a lot of rain.
2: That's right. You want to see a balance, don't you, for the mm. birds? You want some rain, but not too much. And that also, of course, supports the insects that the swallows and the swifts are feeding on as well. They need water too, but too much is a problem. And I think that that's one of the issues with, with climate change. The weather patterns are becoming more unpredictable. And when these birds have a very narrow breeding window, like you take the blue tit, for example, a very common garden bird, but they have a very narrow nesting time, the window. They usually nest from sort of mid to the end of April through into May. And that's it. By by June, it's more or less all done and dusted. And during that very narrow. Period of a month or so, those blue tits, they need to find between ten and 20,000 caterpillars per family to feed their chicks. If that coincides with a period where it's either too wet or too dry for, for the majority of that time, that will severely affect their breeding productivity. The adults might survive, but more of the chicks will die. Richard?
3: Yes, I often think about this during the migration season. Can you imagine a wheat flying, say, from Spain to Greenland, taking a few days to do so? If it should be encounter torrential rain on that, it it could be a a great put-down. You can't see anything. It could be a very big problem. And uh, you can get too much of a good thing. Uh, For instance, there were a few notorious incidents in Kenya back in around 2007. Huge kills of flamingos. Now you say the water birds love uh, rain. Yes, they do in a sense. But you can get too much of a good thing. The, the flamingos died in their tens of thousands in a place, Lake Bulgaria for instance. There was a lot of research there in Kenya. The rain came, swamped the place out and the green alga that's the flamingos need as their food, they couldn't access this anymore. The whole thing was swamped and they started feeding in puddles, and an awful lot of them died as a result of that. Now it brings on other sort of notions as well. There's a bird called the rain crow in the New World which is said to be able to predict when rain is coming far away and there's another one called the golden winged warbler which was researched and there is some crude evidence that it was able to detect a, a rain front hundreds of kilometers away but I don't know if that's true what does Niall and, and, and what does uh, Terry think of that
2: Well, uh, birds have a lot of senses that we don't fully appreciate yet and one of the things they seem to be able to do better than we can is to detect even minute changes in air pressure, which is often an indication that they're heading towards a storm or towards a front of rain. And we do know that birds, especially long-distance migrants, will do what they can to avoid that, sometimes making detours of several days to avoid a storm front. So they are, if not able to predict them, they are at least able to sense them further away than we could. So that seems to be a strategy that has enabled a lot of these long-distance migrants to survive. But it's not a skill that a lot of the more resident birds are so are so expert in so it's kind of swings and round about some birds are better than others
0: that rain crow has another name
3: richard it's called the yellow billed cuckoo it is yes that's right it is that's the more usual name i think
1: Richard, when I think of um, the rain and I think of birds flying in the rain, the one bird that always comes to my mind, I've never actually seen one, is the hummingbird. The, The hummingbird can beat its wings something like 80 or 100 or 200 times a second. It can fly straight, it can fly backwards, it can hover. And I'm told it can actually dodge raindrops. So it can go through a rain shower without getting wet. Isn't that incredible?
3: It is, and it's a theory of relativity here. The hummingbird is moving at a rate of knots, much faster than us. So what we think of as rain flashing down, we can't, we can't look at it. It's going a drop. We can't even see it, but a hummingbird can. The hummingbird is able to detect. Individual drops because it's, its thought processes, its sensory processes are moving at a much faster rate than ours. It's like the swifts diving into the waterfalls of South America. You think they're going into the water. They're not. They're evading the torrent. They're finding a passage through the torrent because they are so fast in their thought processes, in their sensory responses that they can do that.
0: Mm, is it true that a swift can fly up to 80 kilometers per hour? Oh, yes, absolutely. true.
2: Swifts are very fast. There's there's one species of of swift, there's many different species. Ours is the common swift, a very, very fast flyer. The fastest bird in the world in level flight is uh, an Asian swift called the white throated needle tail. Uh, It's got these little spines on the end of its tail rather than a fork tail like other swifts. And that's an adaptation for extreme speed. And they can go well over 100 kilometres an hour or more in direct flight. The fastest bird of all, of course, and the fastest living creature on the planet is the peregrine falcon. But it doesn't do that in level flight, it does it in a stooping dive with the aid of gravity to help it come down. In a streamlined shape. But in terms of powered flight um, from A to B in a straight line, it's the white throated needletail is the
0: fastest bird in the world. So our common swift wouldn't be far behind. Wouldn't well, be far behind. Be no. 40 kilometres behind. It, is
2: that what saying? Oh, but, but yes, but, but the, the absolutely. The swifts are supremely aerial birds. Everything about their body shape, their wings, it's designed for speed and maneuverability in the air. And that's actually the key. It's not just speed, it's maneuverability as well. Mm. They can turn very rapidly, they can chase things. Uh, and the g forces they must expose themselves to when they do that are absolutely phenomenal. And uh, you, you know, when you see films like Top Gun and so on, you you see that they've got
0: a special suit
2: on. They've got a special suit on and they, and they, they can't ex- experience those forces for too long because it's a huge problem. It can even cause them to black, black out. out yeah. uh, with the birds, um, they're actually much better adapted than we are and they're able to do this without the aid of any engines or anything like that. It's all, all uh,
1: Yeah, but there, there is a payback because when you think of the hummingbirds and the swifts and that, their energy levels, they have to burn up huge amounts yeah. of food. So they would have to take in something like their own body weight in food per day or maybe every half a day or something like that. So could you imagine having to eat... 20 or 30 or 40 or 50 kilograms of food every day but they need to do that and that's why when you when you see them they may be beautiful to look at and going back to the hummingbird we don't have them in Ireland but what we do have is the hummingbird hawkmoth and to try and if you watch that and as it's feeding on a plant like Budley or something like that and you may try and, and video it with, with your phone it's impossible to do it because the wings are beating so fast but that that's the payback. They have to take in huge amounts of food to be able to maintain that. Well, you that can lifestyle. always put it on the slow
0: motion setting.
1: Parents. It doesn't work. Does it not? not have you tried. To, to, yes, I have. Yes, oh, I okay. have. Richard.
3: Yes, the swift is a remarkable bird. James Fairley, who passed away in January, uh, I remember him saying once, years and years ago, that birds were not a a very interesting lot to study, compared to the mammals for instance. The mammals have egg-laying mammals and marsupials and and placental mammals and they vary from shrews to ourselves. But birds, birds all do the same thing. They all lay eggs, they all migrate varying distances, but he said they're so so homogeneous throughout their 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 range but there is an exception i think and it is the swift group mm. the swifts do things totally they are the most interesting of birds the devil bird they because they have no feet you see and he's the fourth son See no feet so he couldn't walk the land. You see, when you were in the old days, when you were proposing to marry someone, you walked the land that you would inherit when you married uh, the beloved, you see. So, But he can't do that because he can't walk to start with. Uh, and the fourth son, of course, uh, was the son that didn't inherit anything because the three previous sons had everything. So the fourth son was an impoverished individual. So the poor old Swift was known as the fourth son.
0: I'm the fourth son, just as it happens.
3: Proof, proof. Where
0: are my feet, Anyway, Niall, Tara Adcock, one of your colleagues from Birdwatch Ireland. Tell us all about Tara. What is she doing at the moment? Look, Tara, a fantastic colleague of mine, She uh, she's
2: currently our Urban Birds Project Officer. Mm-hmm. So she's responsible for the projects that we run looking after birds in the urban environment, so in our towns and our cities. You might think that well, surely there's not that much bird life there compared to you know the wider countryside and national parks and islands and on. But in fact, our towns and cities are home to some very important birds, not least of which is the swift we've just been talking Indeed. about, because they pretty much rely entirely on urban areas for nesting. Uh, so it's very much an urban bird. Uh, Richard was mentioning there about the, the whaling wall in, in Jerusalem, uh, because it has the crevices in it, a man made structure. Uh, it's the same thing we have all around in cities and towns in Dublin. And this is a bird that would once have been very abundant across the Irish countryside. They'll travel huge distances to find food, they'll return to the nest uh, to feed their chicks, they build up a big ball of, of flies and other insects in there in their mouths or in their throats when they've got this big mushy ball they then bring it back to the chicks in the nest then go out and get more and we know some of them even in extreme weather we know some Irish swifts have even gone as far as travelling to France to feed and coming back the same day to their, to their nests so they, they're amazing birds but they're a bird that's been declining because in our modern urban environment there are fewer places for them to nest there are fewer nooks and crannies in the brickwork there are fewer gaps in the church steeples there's uh, more and more building work being done to, to remedy old what we've seen as defects in buildings but this is excluding the swifts So um, it's a bird that's actually in trouble. Although it's called a common swift, it's no longer common here.
0: Well, Aina and Ilana sat down with Tara Adcock from the Birdwatch Ireland conservation team to talk about remedies to this particular problem and how we can encourage people and swifts to live alongside each other in harmony.
4: Thanks William, for having me in um, and to talk about swifts, which, like yourself, are one of my favourite species out there. And with good reason. They're an absolutely incredible bird. Possibly not the most visually striking the not the most colourful bird unlike the parakeet that you were talking about last week. The swift is a brown bird so it's a chocolate brown bird. Has a white throat patch but you're not going to see that unless it's in the hand really or it's swooping down really really low beside you. For the most part you're just going to see swifts up high in the sky. It's their body shape though That really gives away a swift. So they have, like you said, these sickle-shaped wings. They have a cigar-shaped body. And their bodies are just, they're designed or adapted for life on the wing. These birds, if they could avoid coming to land, would do so. If they could nest in the air, they would never come
5: down um, to land again. So they'll spend the vast majority of their lives on the wing. You were saying they'd never come down at all if they could lay an egg in the air. Well, they could lay the egg in the air, but that wouldn't do them much good. <laughs> so it's only really when they when they're nesting that we can have any idea of how many of them we have, and you know whether the species are increasing or decreasing. Because like swallows, like house martins, they're aerial feeders and they nest way up high. And. The recent surveys that have been done on swifts have been telling us that there's been a 58% decline in SWIFT populations between 1998 and 2016, according to the Countryside Bird Survey. That means we've lost 58% of our SWIFT population in 18 years. Is
4: this true? Yeah, it's, it's absolutely staggering to lose a huge proportion of our species in that a space of time. Um, and if we continue to lose this at that rate, they will most
5: likely be gone within the next decade or so, which is absolutely horrifying. I mean, are we seeing the same decline in the numbers of swallows, in the numbers of house martins, these aerial feeders that come to us for to spend the summer here? Or is the swift decline greater than that of the other two groups or are the other two groups declining at all? Yeah, so swift decline is, is
4: much, much faster than we're seeing in other similar um, insectivorous species. So also we have climate change, so we're seeing this rain shift in our sub-Saharan migrants. So species like your cuckoo, warblers, swallows, house martens, sand martens, and the swift. So across the British Isles, we're seeing declines in these species, these sub-Saharan migrant species, in the southwestern parts of, of the British Isles. And we're seeing a population increases in the northeastern parts of the range. So we're seeing basically a shift in range across the, the British Isles. And we think that this is principally driven by climate change. But something which is impacting SWIFTS and isn't necessarily impacting the other insectivorous species, such as your swallows and house martins is a loss of nesting habitat.
5: Uh, Ah yeah, this is the thing because where do swifts nest? We all know about the swallows' nests. We all know about the house martens. They collect up mud, they collect up line them with their feathers. The house martens are the ones stuck to the outside. The swallows are inside in the shed. But what do swifts do to nest? Do they, I mean, if they don't come down to the ground, if they land on the ground, they can't take off again. How can they gather nesting material? Do they even build nests? What do they do? <laughs> yeah, so like,
4: like I was saying before, swifts are very much built for life on the wing. So when they're gathering that nesting material, they'll be gathering it on the wing. They also eat on the wing, they sleep on the wing, they mate on the wing. They are built for life on the wing and we see that even when they're gathering their nesting material so when they gather that nesting material it'll be like a bit of feather um, just up in the, the thermals or a bit of straw they'll grab that and they'll find they'll go to a gap in stonework or in brickwork or under eaves or under roof tiles in our houses and in our buildings and that's where they're nesting so they're nesting in these nooks and crannies in buildings Um, And they've evolved to nest in these, in these kind of spaces in our buildings over thousands and thousands of years. So way up high. Way up high. So um, now there (laughs) are nest sites, there are swift nest sites that'll be like three, four feet off the ground, but they're very, very rare. And we don't know how well the chicks do out of that, um, out of those. But generally, they're going
5: to be about five metres or higher up. So they want to be up high. So so they want to be up high. So they gather these bits of little bits of floating things in the air, a bit of straw or feather, nothing at all. They zoom into where they can find a crack or a gutter or some fashion crack and that's where they lay their eggs. But is there a decline in these? I mean, what's happening? Are we smarting up our buildings? Are we building them with different materials? Is it the fact that we're increasing and improving our housing stock that's causing all of this?
4: Yeah, so yeah, you've hit the nail on the head there, exactly. So swifts were nesting with us and the relationship was quite good for thousands of years. So we were leaving all these lovely gaps and stuff in our housing um, that they could take advantage of. But in the last decade or so, we have become increasingly good building very, very well-sealed houses and buildings, which means that there's none of these cracks, none of these crevices for the Swift to get into. So, for instance, um, when we're renovating our houses, we're renovating them up to kind of an A standard oftentimes. And that's really good from an energy efficiency point of view and to an extent from a climate change point of view. But it's really bad for the Swifts because it means that there's no nesting space there for them. So take, for instance, if you have a church in a town and it could hold 40 to 50 swift nests maybe nobody's aware that the swifts are there because one of the things about swifts is that they're incredibly unobtrusive they're very very clean species you can have them living right near your house like under the eaves of your house and not even know that they're there Are there no droppings? There's no droppings like they're because they're tucked right inside and not only that but the parents are incredibly clean like they're complete clean freaks The when the chicks um poo or whatever they uh, have a fecal sac which the parents pick up and they drop outside of the nest like far away from the nest
5: um, site so they're really really clean So you'd never even know you had them no. if you didn't see them zooming in and out Exactly So they're doing up the churches they're fixing yep. the gutters they're doing all of this So are we on a hiding to nothing then? Or is there any way that we can put in artificial places that if we know there's Swifts? I remember uh, years ago on this programme when they were building the Aviva Stadium, which was the Landersdale Road one at that point, um, they were building actual Swift nest boxes that we went to look at, in fact, and they put them there for the Swifts to, to, to actually use. So these were the hollow bricks that they were putting in specially. I mean, should they not be mandatory on all buildings? Yeah, 100 percent. And we would call on ministers
4: um, to make them man- mandatory in all new builds um, ac- right across the country. And I know in the UK there was the Feather Campaign as well, which unfortunately wasn't su- wasn't successful. The Feather Campaign? What was that? Aye, so the Feather Campaign was a petition that was set up by Hannah Byrne-Taylor um, and she was calling on um, the UK government to make it mandatory that in all new buildings, swift bricks are installed inside them. So we need something similar in Ireland.
5: And Uh, did she succeed in that in Britain? No? No, unfortunately
4: not. Um, It wasn't successful. But... I mean, that's not for one to trying. And I know that um, organisations such as the Royal Society for the Protection of Birds are going to keep up the momentum on that. Because um, the, they
5: presume the buildings are equally able to withstand anything. It's not making the building weaker absolutely. or anything like that.
4: Absolutely not. Um, no, it's, it's a no brainer. So it's good for swifts because you have nesting space for them. But it's also really, really good for your architects, for your engineers, for your developers. Because A, these bricks, they just kind of blend seamlessly into the fabric of the building. You wouldn't notice them. They're up really, really high and there's a tiny hole it's about 28 millimeters high so at that height you're not even going to see it and you can plaster over the brick but leave that space free. The hole in that for, for yeah, but how
5: will how will the swifts know they're there? Yeah, so that's because another. I remember r- I remember years ago when you know the swifts were casing the joint. You <laughs> were lying in the bed with the window open, and then there was a big swoop and yeah. this collection of swifts went zooming past. I was thinking they were going to fly in the window altogether, and they were obviously casing the joint to see was there cracks on on our gutters that they could use, and presumably they only come back to where they've nested before. So if I Build a new apartment block somewhere there was none before, and put in these bricks. How will the swift know they're there? Yeah, so
4: um, swifts are a, a kind of a colonial breeding species; they're semi-colonial breeding species. So they like to breed in close proximity to one another. So what they're depending on there is the calls of their own species to let them know that there's that there's nest sites around, um, and that there's swifts there already. So if, you're, if you put in those swift bricks, which I would highly recommend, or if you put in boxes on your houses or your public buildings, you also need a caller system. And the caller system plays the calls of swifts. So they're called bangers. Those birds that you would have seen swooping across um, your gutters there, they're called bangers. Those are young, non-breeding birds, and they're looking for nesting space. So when those bangers hear um, the calls of swifts from your tapler, they'll be like, oh, there's, there's birds there, there's other swifts there, this is great, there must be habitat around and we really like to be around other swifts. So they'll come and investigate it, they'll find those swift bricks or they'll find those nest boxes, see that they're empty and they're like, yes, and they've got a home. So that's how you bring
5: them in. So they don't mind the fact that they don't actually find any other occupied nests as such. Once they hear the swift calls, they think, well, there are swifts around and I'm lucky to find an empty one that hasn't been occupied. So I'm away. And that's what they do. And they come back then to the same nests each year, do they? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So swifts are incredibly sight-faithful. So it's another part of, of the
4: problem when it comes to swifts. So we are renovating swifts out. Um, of our buildings for um, by closing off those gaps, off those crevices. We're building new buildings that are completely well-sealed and have no space for SIFs. So they have a double whammy of losing, of essentially getting evicted from their, their existing nest sites and then having no new um, housing coming on the market for them. One of the reasons why this is also a massive problem for swifts is because they're incredibly site-faithful. If we go back to the church analogy, if you close off all those nest sites in the church, And they come back in the breeding season, and those nest sites are gone. They're not just going to go and find another space to breed because they're very much tied to the nest site that they have been breeding in for years they're not terribly flexible so that season they probably won't breed again and we reckon that many of these displaced pairs they probably won't find another breeding space to, to nest in again and when you're seeing these massive declines these 58% declines in a very short space of time the loss of breeding pairs or breeding successes every year that has a cumulative effect and is, is really really bad for the overall population so,
5: so swifts are long-lived birds aren't they?
4: Yeah so the oldest bird that they have the oldest swift that they found from reading records is 21 years of
5: age And they start breeding at four or five so the one pair could be coming to the same site for 15 years If but what happens to the young how many young do they have
4: yes yeah, so every year they'll lay about two eggs in Ireland
5: and get two off if the weather is good yeah so will those young want to come back again to that same area or will they get it well they, they're the bangers they're the ones that are looking for new land and it might not be in the vicinity of where they were born at all or is it
4: yeah, so um, I don't think we, we fully understand how that's working. There's still an awful lot of work to be done on SWIFTS and our understanding of their ecology. Um, but you would imagine that they would come back to similar areas or to the, the wider area that they had been reared from. So, yeah, you'd imagine that they'll be coming back. So if you have a house in Dublin and you have Swift boxes or gaps in your face or whatever, and you have Swift coming out of that, fledging from that young Swiss you'd imagine that those young Swift will come back to check out the area. In that
5: area as well, indeed, yeah. yeah. So have anybody put these up at all, apart from the Aviva Stadium, and have they been successful?
4: Yeah, so um, over in Mayo, there's been quite a lot of work by Swift Conservation Ireland to put up swift bricks. So swift bricks are literally built into the fabric of the wall. They're a brick with a hollow centre that the swifts can go into. And the reason that these are so good is that they're permanent. So once that goes into the building, unless that building is knocked down, that, that nesting site for the swift is there permanently. Um, so that's why they're the gold standard for swifts and for kind of creating habitat nesting. And practices. you only need,
5: you only need this, the calls until you get the established don't have to put in the calls every year because I presume you put up the calls at the beginning of May for the early ones so that they'll think there's somebody living there and but then once that's done you don't have to do it anymore the following year or the year after.
4: Yeah, so you you can keep doing it if you say you only have one or two pairs and you kind of want to get the word out there to the rest of the swifts that there's nesting space. You can do that until your colony um, really, really fills up. I know there are houses, so there's one house down in Kildare where it's a rural house actually, which is quite unusual. Dermot Dorn is the man and he has over 40 uh, swift nest boxes up and he has a lot of uh, swifts nesting in those, but he still keeps the tapler on to draw in more stuff. so you can keep them on. But if it's annoying your neighbours um, or if it's wrecking your own head,
5: you can, once you get those swifts established, you can turn it off. And then you have those nest boxes then, which are a different thing altogether. Tell us about those. Are they big? Are they small? Do they look like a nest? What What's involved there?
4: Yeah, so a SWIFT nest box is a long uh, rectangular nest box. Um, you can get it as a single cavity, a double or a triple cavity. It looks pretty much like a bird box, like your typical bird box, except instead of being lengthways, it
5: goes horizontally. You put that up and will it only be for swifts or will you get other things like starlings or other whole nesting birds wanting it or is it too high for some of those species?
4: Yeah, so you will get other species nesting in them. Now, if you buy them from, for instance, Genesis, um, nest boxes down in Kerry, or if you make them yourself, you make them so that there's a 28mm high nest entrance and the starlings can't get into those so um, you won't have the swifts and starlings competing for those nest it's boxes. It's too small
5: for the starlings is it? It's
4: too small for the starlings yeah. to get in. Yeah, House sparrows will get into them um, they're small enough that they can squeeze in but the swifts can sort that out for themselves. Um, oh do
5: they evict sp- sparrows? Oh, do they what? Yeah. Um, well, You've gonna <laughs> battle, battle royale. Yeah yeah yeah, yeah 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 totally. And a sparrow could be there already and along comes this Swift and says "Uh oh, yep. oh and turfs it out. <laughs> yeah yeah that's, but that's nature that's how it works I'm afraid. <laughs> So what are Birdwatch Ireland doing now? I mean, as we speak, I mean, it's now August, the season is over for this year. Have we surveys? Do we know what it was like this year? Are we doing them on a county basis? Are we doing them on an Ireland basis? Car on scale, if very good say. Uh,
4: yeah, so we're doing quite a number of things with SWIFTS. Um, so, like you said, we're doing county surveys. So this summer we have been looking at County Monaghan, Carlow and Offaly. And actually the survey in Offaly is a resurvey of work that was carried out in 2017. So Offaly was our flagship project for the County Swift surveys.
5: So um, you did one in 2017. You uh-huh. put in works, I hope, presumably did more nest boxes and bricks and now you've resurveyed it again this year so it'll be interesting to see has it kept the decline at bay has it increased them or whatever
4: Yeah yeah, and that's data that we're collecting and looking at at the minute um, so we don't have that data to hand just yet but it'll be really really interesting to see what's happened over the last number of years in Offaly. um but to date Birdwatch Ireland has carried out 16 county surveys and then one three surveys that's 17 in total and we've also looked at Dublin City and South Dublin for these baseline SWIFT surveys
5: What can people do now At the middle of August when you know obviously the season is over do they do anything now do they wait till next spring I mean if I want to encourage SWIFTs to come to my house where they are not and never have been what do I do now in August or do I do anything
4: Yeah, yeah. No, you Mm. definitely can. Um, August is a really good time to start thinking about this and to start doing stuff because the season will be upon you before you know it. So I've just moved into a new house and I have uh, gotten swift nest boxes and I'll be putting them up over the next couple of days. That's something that other people can do. And I would really, really encourage people to put boxes up for swifts. It's one thing that individuals and local community groups can definitely do to make a difference for swifts. Another thing that people can do is dig a pond. So these these birds are insectivores. They love of insects. So dig a pond. Ponds are really good for insects. It's not only good for insects, it's good for other species right up the chain. And it's good for us. It's good for our mental health to have these spaces that are good for wildlife. It makes us feel better.
5: So provide the homes, provide the food and then sit back and enjoy it.
4: Exactly. And then another thing that I really, really recommend people do is get involved in your local community groups. This is vital for saving the swift. Um, the swift is really unusual. We can we can save this bird. It nests in our buildings. We have direct control over the habitat that it is so intrinsically linked to it. So we can save it. If you get involved with your local community groups, such as your tidy town, you can put up nest boxes in your local area. You can petition your local authorities under the county development plan to put boxes and to put swift bricks into any buildings. that schools, are. Schools, I presume, would be a good schools place are to go as well. Yeah, yeah schools are absolutely brilliant. It's, it, the next generation is the key for saving Ireland's biodiversity. So bringing these kids along with us um, on this journey is really, really important. It, it lets the next generation make a difference in, in their own right as well. Good to talk to you,
5: Tara. Thank you for coming in. And hopefully next year you'll be coming in telling us it's all and getting better again. Yeah, hopefully we'll keep
4: our fingers crossed
0: thank you very much indeed Tara Adcock and Aina Nilana. details on the website as always rte.ie forward slash moody and while you're there you can listen back to a special documentary myself and Niall made about the swift oh my goodness it must be about four or five years ago now Niall I'm forgetting time is passing very quickly
2: it is no that's right a fascinating bird and uh, one of my favourite things that I've ever done for the programme you and I found ourselves in Baku in Azerbaijan (laughs) Azerbaijan. Uh, that was amazing and we were talking there about the the, the swifts that have been encouraged to nest alongside this wonderful old structure called uh, the Maiden Tower Hmm. renovation work was being done on that and it would have excluded the nesting opportunities for the Swifts that have been there for for literally centuries maybe even millennia on that tower and what the city authorities had done was they had put nesting boxes on an old Soviet era apartment block just adjacent to that tower. Real contrast, wonderful ancient old building in this rather ugly tower block just beside it. But rather than just plonk them up on the wall, they'd put them into the shape of three Swifts in flight. These three giant Swifts flying through the air. It was really effective and I was just really blown away by it. I think it's been an inspiration to Swift conservationists all over the world.
0: All right, details on the website, as I've just said, rte.ie forward slash Mooney. That sound you're hearing there is the sound of the osprey, a sound once common around Irish lakes and rivers before falling silent when they were hunted and eggs collected to extinction here about 150 years ago. How many raptors did we have in Ireland, Richard?
3: Oh, we had a whole chain of them. We had the two eagles, we had the kite, we had the osprey, the kestrel, the sparrowhawk, the hen harrier, the marsh harrier. And I think we had Montague's harrier and, of course, the merlin. There's a whole plethora of them, but they they suffered the most appalling decline. But there's been a kind of resurrection. They're back from the dead. It's one of the great achievements of conservation here in a sense. The buzzard has come back of its own accord. It was on the verge of being extinct here. And we've brought back the eagles and the kites. And now the osprey is on its way back. We're the odd man out when it comes to ospreys, by the way. The Scots, the Welsh, and the English all have ospreys. Now Ireland should be better for ospreys than other places. Why are we the odd person out? But anyway, that's the opening thoughts on this subject. Well, if you
0: listen to this programme regularly, you'll know, as Richard has said, that the Osprey is on its way back to Ireland. The National Parks and Wildlife Service are reintroducing this bird, which hasn't been seen here for almost two centuries. At any rate, I can tell you that in the last two weeks, ten Osprey chicks arrived in Ireland from Norway. I was lucky enough to be in Norway when they took one of the chicks from the Eyrie. The Eyrie is the nest that they build on top of trees. And it's fantastic. If you go to our website, rte.ie forward slash mooney, you'll see just how big the nest really is. And in this case, it's on top of a scots pine near a lake which is perfect for fishing that's what they feed on they feed on fish there were representatives from the national parks and wildlife service and the norwegian institute for nature research and what you're about to hear now is a commentary as it all happened as the bird has been taken from the nest and lowered to the ground by duncan john halley a senior research scientist with the norwegian institute for nature research oh and by the way he's from scotland which will explain his accent
6: So we're um, at the nest now, it's an old Scots pine in a piece of open bog woodland beside a little lake and the birds, you can hear them calling above me from time to time as I'm talking and Barrow Moshlit, who is is our climber, he's in forestry in his day job, is on his way up the tree while a team from RTA are, are filming him. So we're trying to get this done as quickly as practical to, to minimise stress to the birds, but of course it always takes a little bit of time to achieve.
3: Let's go, let's go, lift it up.
6: The um, breeding season has been pretty good and the weather has been nice uh, the last days, so all of the chicks are pretty well fed, so we've not got any worries there. The, the chicks that are in the nest right now are going to be in fine condition. I can see one of the parents circling about 30-40 metres above the nest site and... He or she is giving an alarm call. Yes, yeah, it's, it's the female. She's uh, giving an alarm call uh, from time to time and keeping an eye on what's going on. But these are very unaggressive birds. I've only ever heard of one occasion where one even came close to a person climbing the tree and they never strike from that point of view. It's a pretty safe thing to do. And the chicks are, are pretty calm when you, when you get them in the hand. They just sit quietly. They don't appear to be extremely stressed. So... Um, Um, So far, yeah, there's the bird calling. It's um, circling above the nest, maybe 20 metres up, and just keeping an eye on what's going on. How do you know it's the female? The females are somewhat larger. Their wings are a slightly different shape uh, than, than the males, and there are some variations in 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 coloration, but it 's kind of a bit like humans, most men are bigger than most women, but that 's not always the case. so you do find birds that are are impossible to tell, but in this case we 're sure this one's a female and the nest is huge also isn't it yeah they they just keep on building it, and uh, what will happen with a nest like this is it will blow out in the winter quite often because it's as you can see it's it's just balanced on some flat branches at the top it's not got big support from branches growing up on either side of it so this is quite likely to blow out in the winter but then they'll just rebuild it again and that will have happened time after time after time some of these have been occupied for well we know at least 80 90 years Um, there are some nests that have been occupied continuously since since photography was around to record it
0: She's very concerned now. He's getting closer to the yeah, nest.
6: There, that. That's the male over there. That call there is the um, seriously alarmed call. And up there is the other bird. So they're both over the, over the nest now. So she most likely was not
0: only sending out an alarm call, but yeah. beckoning him to come he back. He will have heard it. He yeah.
6: will, have, will, have, will have come back to the nest. So well, how
0: far would that call carry?
6: On a day like this, um, and if you're an osprey, it'll, it'll carry more than a kilometre, I would think. I don't know where he was, of course, but he may well have been on his way back. doesn't look as if he'd got a fish with him, but he may also just have been sleeping somewhere in the location. It's, like I said, the the weather's been very nice, and, and feeding the chicks is, has not been a problem in recent days. That's the other bird calling now, so they're both hanging around. Um is now about two thirds of the way up the tree this is a pretty difficult tree it's uh you've got about what six seven meters to go before there are any branches at all then it's it's uh quite a a gnarled sort of tree which and you have to be careful about safety here so um it takes a little bit of time to get to the top and we need to be we need to be careful about that. Well, he's a professional climber. He's a professional. He's a forester. He's a, a forester. He knows what he's doing, and he's all roped and he's up roped, there. and he's got safety equipment, and he's always tied on with um, to the tree, so the most he can fall is maybe a meter. But it takes time, of course, because you have to secure yourself every step of the way up. Now we're pretty sure there are two chicks in that nest. Is there any danger at this stage? They could explode. No, no from these that are, nest. These are, these are too young for that. When birds are ne- near to flying from the nest anyway, then one of the things they'll do if they feel themselves being to be in danger is to jump out of the nest early mm. to get away from a, a predator, if, say, a pine marten was coming up this nest. But one of the last feathers to develop in, in birds of prey and in ospreys in particular are the final flight feathers because it's obviously a disaster for the bird if it goes off the nest too early. And if it's windy and you're an inexperienced bird and you've got all your flight feathers, then, then the risk of being blown out of the nest early is worse than the, the risk of being being predated by, by a, a marten, for example. So they develop the flight feathers as the very last thing in their development. And that means they, can, they reach pretty much full size when they've still got, say, a week or ten days to go before they're, they're able to fly. So he's now got maybe two metres to go before he's, he's at the nest, at which point we find out if we are right, that <laughs> we're pretty sure there are two chicks in this nest. But you obviously don't approach the nest closely, and in this case the nest is lying in such a position that near the nest you can't actually see in it. So we've only seen it from a considerable distance, and so we're only 99.9% sure that there are two or more, sometimes there are three, chicks in this nest. But the the moment of truth is approaching. Yes, so definitely too young. So we were right. But until you really see them in the nest, you're never totally sure.
0: It really was a magical experience. Now. The plan is is to bring between 50 and 70 chicks chicks from Norway Norway to Ireland over the next five years or so in order for this project to be a success. Will it work? Only time will tell. Earlier I spoke with Dr Philip Buckley, the National Parks and Wildlife Service Divisional Manager for the Southwest Region.
7: Hi Derek and hello to your listeners. And I can just say thank you for having us on and we're really excited with the Osprey Reintroduction Programme and to be initiating this programme now and we have brought in our first osprey chicks in Ireland in over 200 years are now on Irish soil. So we're really excited with the programme and we have our fingers crossed that it will work and we will reintroduce this species to Irish skies again.
0: Well Philip I've no doubt that you will be successful because you have the experience and now you've got the birds courtesy of the Norwegians so the question is what happens to the birds now? Where are they exactly?
7: Those birds are being held in specially designed holding pens and we'll feed them and monitor them and look after them basically around the clock so they're fed three times a day at the minute uh, and they're a fish eating bird so they're basically fed fresh fish three times a day a feeding regime then maybe down to two and then just before we release them they'll be down to maybe once a day so we'll keep them maybe for around three weeks it depends exactly We'll know by looking at them when they're kind of ready to go, when they start exercising and getting their wings in order to make their first flight. So maybe around the end of August, we hope they'll be in a proper state to release into the wild. And at that stage, we'll open the pens and hopefully the birds will fly out and that'll be their, their first time in the air. And our intention is then maybe to feed them for a couple of weeks around the, the holding or release site. And at that stage then, the osprey, it's a migratory species, so it and the natural populations that migrate between Northern Europe and Equatorial Africa. They usually head off end of August, during September. So we would expect that these young birds, after we've released them, fed them for a couple of weeks, they will then naturally head off for Africa.
0: Philip, I'm just wondering if these birds will return to Ireland. Is there not a danger they'll return to Norway, given that they were actually born there, albeit that they will technically fledge in Ireland, they learn to fly here and they will fly from here. What's going to happen
7: do you think? They generally return to the area where they were fledged. The males tend to be more faithful to their site of origin Uh, and then when the males come back in, in in the spring, they'll come back after maybe two or three years, they breed at about three years old. The males come back usually pretty close to where they were born and released and they will set up territory and they in turn then attract the females. The females tend to move around a bit more and they choose the you know the male and the nest site that they want. To. So we hope that these birds will return to Ireland and maybe to the general geographic area where we're holding now in the, in the southeast of the country. But there are no absolute guarantees with a project like this. But we will... To have the birds colour marked and we may put satellite tags on one or two of them. So we will certainly know where they go for the first couple of months. And anyway, maybe two years time we'll have to wait and see that they do return here at that stage. Well, it's
0: great news, Philip. So congratulations to everybody involved. And thank you very much indeed for keeping us informed.
7: Thank you very much, Derek, and thank you for your interest.
0: And needless to say, we'll keep a very close eye on that story. That's all we have time for today. My thanks to Aina Nilana, Richard Collins and Terry Flanagan. Our broadcast coordinator is Daniel Keating and our researcher is John Bella Riley. Visit the website anytime you like, rte.ie forward slash Mooney.
7: Until next time, goodbye.